wake up the kids. It's Thursday night, it's the 11th of February, and this is the Hot Topics podcast. Hello everyone, it's Neil Tucker here from the MB Medical team. Thanks for joining us once again on the Hot Topics podcast. And yes, a bit different tonight. I'm recording this uh, on a Thursday evening. Normally I would do this on a Friday. I have loads of time to think about it, plan it. In fact, it takes me an embarrassingly long time to put a very short podcast together. But tonight we do not have that luxury. My youngest, my three-year-old, is in another... 10-day period of self-isolation because of a a staff member testing positive at the nursery, which, believe me, is virtually impossible to record a podcast when you're trying to look after a three-year-old as well. So I thought I'd try and shoehorn something in tonight. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, didn't he say he was doing this just before the last podcast? And yes, it was. And yes, the talk about parental burnout was a massive cry out for help. But I think it's okay. I think I've got it in hand. This time, tomorrow, we're getting a massive delivery from Hobbycraft. So even if that doesn't entertain the children, at least I can de-stress doing some colouring in whilst they watch six hours of TV a day. The good news for me is that actually I don't have to put very much work in tonight at all because most of the hard work has been done. And today in this podcast, we're going to have an interview that I did with Terry Kempel from last year. So Terry Kempel is a GP who's really involved with trying to get general practice more green. I had wanted to talk more about the environment, the effects of pollution and such like on our patients, what we can do in general practice. And everything got pushed back, understandably, because of the pandemic. But I think now we're in a position where we can start thinking a little bit more broadly about the other issues that are affecting us, our patients and our practices. So that's coming a little bit later on. First, let's talk about COVID and a couple of quick pieces of research that were published this week. So boy, is it a roller coaster with COVID and vaccines and efficacy at the moment, isn't it? I'm not sure that putting out a podcast on a Friday afternoon is actually that great an idea because it seems for the last few times I've done it, some new bit of research leaked by the government seems to completely contradict whatever I've just been saying. I make no promises about anything I say this time round. So good news first. So we seem to have some confirmation that the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine has good efficacy at least up to 12 weeks after the first jab. And now we've also got some preliminary data in preprint suggesting that the Pfizer jab is 90% effective after the first dose after the first 21 days. Unsurprisingly, after the first couple of weeks, things don't seem to be that great, but then they do seem to improve. Now, this is data from Pfizer's rollout in Israel, but actually it seems to be very reminiscent of the data they'd published in their main phase three trial, if you crunch the numbers in the right way. At least now we can have some confidence in this government recommendation of a 12-week gap between each of the doses for both these vaccines. And I dare say a few vaccine specialists and immunologists are feeling quite vindicated. They said all along that this longer gap should be fine, maybe even beneficial. But many people were really quick to shoot them down because the trials, of course, had only used a three-week gap. And I think this is when people take evidence-based medicine too, um, too far. 
Just because you've shown that something will work in one way doesn't mean that it won't work in another. And we shouldn't be so quick to dismiss the experts' opinions when in truth, most of us know jack all about immunology or vaccines. And I think it's really taking evidence-based medicine beyond its own remit. Now, of course, the bad news is the South African variant and the fact the Oxford vaccine doesn't seem to be particularly effective against it. In truth, that's coming from a small study. The, the uncertainty is still pretty high there, although it definitely seems to be trending that way. Nevertheless, it may still protect against severe disease, which is probably the most important thing, even if in an ideal world, all of the vaccines would stop transmission as well. At least the Pfizer and I think some of the other new vaccines coming through now should be effective against it. So all hope is not lost. I think it is difficult if you're a patient and you're reading all of this and then you turn up to a clinic and you go, yeah, you're getting the Oxford vaccine. They go, oh, I'm not sure I want that one, actually. I think that is pretty tough. But on the positive side, it is still very effective against the Kent variant, our UK born and bred coronavirus which at least for the time being is doing a pretty good job of muscling out the South African version. I think it's pretty tough for us as well because we as the vaccinators we're putting a lot of time and effort into doing these vaccine clinics and part of me just wonders they're talking about releasing updates in the autumn most of us have probably clocked the fact that that might mean we're going to need to vaccinate everyone again from autumn. And there's a lot of goodwill around at the moment. You know, we it, it's a nice thing to do these clinics, but we can't keep doing more and more and more forever, not with the same degree of resources. So I think if ultimately we're going to have to start vaccinating the entire population on an annual level, they're going to need to have a bit of a rethink. We might need funding for practices just to have some permanent vaccinators on staff. Maybe we could do that in practice mobile units in the uh, in the car parks. Maybe that could double as a camper van because all the other holidays in the summer have already been taken. Just throwing that one out there for the PCN leads, thanks. Now let's have a quick look at some of the research and first we have a new paper that's published in the BMJ and I wanted to share this one with you mostly because I wanted to get your feedback on it, to be honest. So this is a systematic review and meta-analysis looking at the association between antihypertensive treatment and adverse effects. And so they were looking at randomized controlled trials of adults receiving antihypertensives compared with placebo or no treatment. And the primary outcome was falls. Cut to the chase, this meta-analysis found no evidence to suggest that antihypertensive treatment is associated with falls. Now, I'm just not sure this is credible. There's a lot of very eminent names on the top of this paper. Very smart people who absolutely know what they're doing. But, but ask yourself this, have you ever had a patient who's clearly had a fall as a result of becoming hypotensive due to over-treatment with antihypertensives? I'm just not sure I buy it. They did report that there were minor adverse effects including hypotension without falls and major adverse effects including acute kidney injury and syncope. And it may be that it's the study population here which is um, maybe younger, fitter, healthier, less likely to have falls. It may be that some of the studies have had um, under-reporting of falls for various reasons. And in its discussion, the paper does concede that if this were the case, 
then serious falls and fractures associated with antihypertensive treatment could be greater in routine clinical practice. But overall, I'm just not quite clear about the message that this paper is trying to give to clinicians. Now, the other big story in the news this week was a new weight loss drug. Of course, it's not a new drug. This is semeglutide, which um, has traditionally been used for diabetes, but it's now been found to be very effective at reducing weight in adults with overweight or obesity. And in 68-week trial comparing once-weekly subcut semeglutide to placebo, they found that the average weight loss in the treatment group was almost 15% compared with 2.5% in the placebo group. This isn't the first drug in the class to have shown similar benefits. Liraglutide has similar positive data. And I think it's great that there are now some potentially very effective drugs for people who are really struggling with their weight. I still can't quite shake the thought that the main mechanism of action is just that it makes people feel really sick. So almost half of the treatment group had nausea compared to 17% in the placebo group. And although the study did report that these um, side effects were typically mild and improved over time, I just wonder, I probably need to talk to more people who have had semeglutide and liraglutide, but basically if you've got nausea, you just don't want to eat, do you? Maybe it's not surprising that they all end up losing weight. Is that a bad thing? Do the ends justify the means? I don't know. Perhaps I should just stop overthinking it and let the patients make the choice themselves. Okay, time for our chat with Terry Kemple now. And a valuable reminder that I need to start thinking a bit more green in my practice once again, trying to rally the troops and make those positive changes that we were doing prior to COVID hitting. And if you are interested in the environment and what positive changes you can make in your practice, both to help your patients, both to help the world and to save you some money as well, then do listen on. Okay, so joining us today, we've got uh, we've got Terry Kemple. So Terry is a GP. He's been a GP for many years over in the West Country. He's been president of the RCGP amongst many other important roles. And, and now his focus has changed to the environment, um, sustainability, climate change, green issues, and the role that we in primary care may have in being able to try and help with this global issue, but also the issues that might directly affect our patients as well. So hi, Terry, thanks for joining us today. Hi. So maybe let's just start, give, give me a bit of background about about yourself. Um, well, I was mostly a full-time GP in Bristol for over 30 years, um, involved in particularly quality improvement, bit of research, uh, education, management, all that sort of stuff. And then in the latter years, got more active in the sort of the green issue movement, particularly when Bristol became green capital of Europe back in 2015. And um, maybe just give me a bit of an idea then about what's your, what's become your role regarding the environment and sustainability? Well, I'm one of the founders of the Green Impact for Health Toolkit and Award Scheme, which we started in Bristol. And then I remain the national representative for sustainability, climate change and green issues with the RCGP. And for them, I also sit on the executive of the UK Health Alliance for Climate Change. Those are the, the main roles. And there may be people at home who are thinking to themselves, well, 
why is this an important issue for general practice and uh, what can we do as primary care clinicians to actually make a difference here? I mean, why, why, why should we be thinking about it? Well, we, we, I think we all know how our lives have been disrupted by the pandemic, but climate change and the ecosystem crisis will have much greater effects on all our lives for generations to come. Right now, right now around the world, people face increasing experience of heat, food and water insecurity, floods and the rest, and changing patterns of infectious diseases. And that will get worse for us. Yeah, I mean, I think it's becoming a bit more apparent, isn't it, that what's happening in the environment around us um, locally and then what's happening globally as well is starting to have a big impact. And I see just actually this week in the news, uh, we've been talking about the they've been talking about the case of this the, this poor girl who died a few years ago of asthma yeah. and the question whether uh, air pollution could have had a direct link to her death and I think this is already established fact in many parts of the world. I remember when we went to Hong Kong a few years ago to try and do a hot topics course and of course we were doing a lot of stuff about what we were doing in 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 the UK. And actually, uh, one of their big questions was, as we were talking about asthma and COPD, like, they were like, well, you haven't mentioned air pollution. And of course, we hadn't really clocked that this is a huge issue. And in some parts of the world where it's really awful, it's very, very apparent that it's killing a lot of people. But actually, that's also true here, because although we, we may not be able to see it, I think probably all of us are aware about the level of pollution, particularly in our cities. Oh, yeah. In the UK, it's, it's very well established that... Uh... There are around about 44,000 excess deaths every year. Now, if you currently, I think the, the, the COVID excess deaths are around about 50,000, 60,000 in the UK. But every year we've got about 44,000 excess deaths, temperature deaths from air pollution. Uh, and a lot of that is to do with oil powered and coal powered sources of air pollution. So, we, we, you know, if we clean up our air, then we will have health benefits uh, and lots of places around the world have incredibly poor environments for uh, with air pollution. China in particular, it's incredible the amount of air pollution in China. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because I think that particularly things like air pollution really do bring it home to why this is an important issue, a directly important issue to us as, uh, as clinicians and why we should be caring about this. Because, you know, if we're saying, well, I care that my patient's blood pressure is a bit raised and I want to do something about that, and then maybe I should be saying, well, this person's got some kind of respiratory disease. Air pollution may be a problem for that. I, I want to try and do something about that. So I guess it's not that we can do everything in primary care, but uh, I'm beginning to appreciate that actually there's quite a lot of different areas that we could work on. And I guess that's what when you set up the Green Impact for Healthcare Toolkit, that's part part of what that's, that toolkit is trying to do, isn't it? It's um, It's trying to give us some ideas about the differences that we can make in, in general practice. Yeah, when, when our group met up in the sort of 2014 in Bristol, and we were all sort of concerned about the environment and what we should be doing, but we didn't actually know what we should be doing. It was just a bit too difficult. You know, it's, it's, it, it, you, you, you became lost in the enormity of the task, really. Uh, and so part of what we did with the Green Impact was really to give people a clear idea about what it is that they can actually do in their practice, then give them a, re a clear reason why they should be doing it, like air pollution, and then give them uh, uh, easier ways to achieve what they're set setting out to do. So just to make it easier. So nobody can say, well, I don't know what I can do in my practice, because, well, we can tell you what you should be doing in your practice. You don't necessarily 
have to do all of it, but there's something there for everybody. Relatively simple tasks, which all help. Uh, I know a, a lot of people have signed up to the toolkit already. I mean, you've got a few hundred practices around the country that have they've already started working towards it. Over seven hundred. Over seven hundred. Seven hundred. That's. I mean, that's that's very good. But I mean, the goal, I guess, is to try and get every practice engaging with this and start trying to make some of those simple changes. Yeah, certainly. So, I mean, the, the whole thing about the climate change agenda is that there's no point, uh, you know, a very few perfect people doing every impossible thing. Uh, what we want is lots of the rest of us who aren't perfect doing as much as we possibly can. That's what's really what's going to really move the dial on this, really. Yeah. So uh, there's there's always something you can do. Uh, and, and and eventually what we really want to get, get to a tipping point. Uh, where actually it becomes just natural. This is what we do. It's it's good for the patient and it's good for the planet type prescriptions. And we realise that, you know, and, and I'm pretty sure we'll, you know, 20, 30 years from now, we'll look back on what we were doing now and 10 years ago and 20 years ago and think, what on earth were we doing? Why were we so crazy? You know, and like all these things that we can look back, you, you see an old film from the 1960s and, and you think, what on earth were they doing? You know, all that smoking, oh, what were they thinking? Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you're right. And of course, uh, the youth of today are already um, very on board with this idea. And some of us who are a bit older are the ones who are just sort of grossly behind the curve, really. There's no doubt that by the time the the youth of today are a bit older, they're going to be um, highly engaged with this is going to be this is going to be the, the, the major issue for their lifetime, isn't it? So uh, we're, we're inevitably, we will see change. But Equally, we want to try and make that change happen as fast as we can because kind of every every year counts, doesn't it? Every year counts, and and you're right, and you're saying that you know this is really a sort of a youth-led movement. The other thing that's going to happen is they're going to be really angry with my generation. <laughs> you know, we've been the luckiest of generations, but we've had warnings now since the nineteen very clear warnings since the nineteen seventies when we could have done something about it, and we haven't. So uh, they're going to be really angry. A bit like we look back, you know, we look back on people, you know, in the slave trade days and think, you know, what were they thinking? And, and, and you know, we blame them. You know, in Bristol, we've had Edward Colston blame him uh, quite rightly, but the next generation will blame us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a there's a terrifying thought. And if ever there's something to spur us into action, that's got to be it, isn't it? I mean, uh, having looked at the So um, my practice is signed up to the Green Impact for Healthcare Toolkit and we started doing it last year and i have to say we parked it a bit once uh, once the once the pandemic hit but i'm keen to try and get start getting things on like getting things going again and for all of you out there who if you haven't come across the toolkit so far that i'd really uh, really encourage you to have a look at it and sign up I'll, I'll put the link for the website in the description of the podcast today so that you can you can easily go through to it it's free to sign up. You don't have to pay uh, pay anything. Uh, so I just encourage you to, to to take a look. And if, like me, when you first look at it, you feel a bit overwhelmed by the amount of things that there are that you can do on there, particularly for trying to achieve maybe the uh, levels of awards, because you can, uh, as you work through, as you progress through the toolkit, you can get different levels of awards uh, that you can achieve. So bronze, um, silver, gold, and then beyond that as well which is well worth trying to aim for. Um, but uh, don't be put off by the early stages. And the idea isn't necessarily that you have to do all of these. It's about 
getting the ideas out there so that you can start integrating them into practice. And as, as Terry says, I think some of the changes that you might make, it may be something as simple as making sure that your paper is sourced from um, sustainable sources uh, that you use, uh, that you print on both sides of papers rather than just printing on one side of paper and you halve your paper consumption. Things like that, once you've established in practice, are things that you will do forever and um, and then you don't need to really think about again. And I'd make the point about it is, is that when you're working more sustainably, the, the big, one of the big reasons of doing it is you save money for the practice. You consume less and you waste less. And actually that's recurring saving. So it's not like a one-off saving. Every year, you know, you will save more money going on because you're just uh, a lot more aware of uh, how you're spending your money and you're wasting less. I think that's a really nice idea. I mean, it's kind of like a win-win scenario, actually, isn't it? So we're all, so, yeah. budgets are always tight. If we can do something that actually improves the budgets of practices and can help the environment, then that's that's a real win. I mean, I'd stress uh, that the, you can use it in three ways. You don't even have to sign up for it. You know, you can look on the website and then uh, you can actually see what the various criteria are and just pick on a few that you, you fancy doing, you want to do, you think they're important to you. And as I say, you'll save money and you'll be more sustainable. And then, you know, perhaps after you've got your toe wet, you might want to go in a bit further and then you might register for it uh, and then work your way through the various criteria. And the aim now, we've changed it and I think improved it quite a lot this year, quite honestly, made it a lot easier to use. But now we're designing it as a pathway to get your practice to be net zero carbon by 2030. So you could sort of dip in uh, on that. And then if you really want to, you can go for the award system. Only about 10% of the practices that are registered actually uh, do the award system. So you don't have to do that either. But, uh, you know, it, it's part of a continuous quality improvement cycle for, for the practice. And quite a lot of practices really do enjoy getting some positive feedback that, oh, yeah, we're, we're bronze award this year, we're silver award, we're, we're gold award, and now we're shooting for the carbon award type stuff. So there's something there for everybody. So you don't have to sort of go for the whole, right, we're going to go zero net carbon by 2030. You can dip your, dip your toes in the water and just do a few things which will save your practice money. I think it's a nice idea as well that it is something that is very positive that a practice can do that actually I think a lot of your staff will want to get involved with and we we found actually there was a lot of enthusiasm for this and if you think about things that generate enthusiasm within a practice it ain't quaff it, it ain't yeah. meeting the criteria for your PCN DESs it, so it's quite nice to have something that everyone can get aboard with that they're enthusiastic about and feel like they're making a really positive difference there are always people in your practice who want to do something like this. The problem is they don't know what to do. They don't really feel empowered to do it. And actually, if you get a few of them uh, working together and knowing what to do, then it shares the work out amongst the practice team. And then it gradually spreads the culture of sustainability to others. And then beyond the practice, hopefully, to the community. So the advantage of general practice is, of course, we've got a footprint in every community in the UK. And beyond and you know people gps and practices are role models patients see what we do and they copy us and everybody should be asking what are you doing in your practice and and what is it that you want or need to do differently because there is always something and the green impact for health toolkit can give you ideas about how you can save money and uh, and be more sustainable and hopefully work towards being a net zero practice thank you so much for joining us thank you well, that pretty much wraps up the podcast today, guys. So thanks very much for joining us once again. 
we are planning as MB Medical to do a green conference, a hot topics in environment and sustainability later on this year. So watch this space if you are interested, if you do want to learn more about this, um, if you want to um, sort of join a network of practices who are um, trying to make a bit of a difference there, then um, that's what we're going to be talking about. And as ever, you can contact us on hottopics at mbmedical.com or via Twitter at GP Hot Topics or at Dr. Neil Tucker and find us on Facebook as well. And I'll be back in God only knows when, two or three weeks, I hope, when I hope the family is out of self-isolation and maybe enjoying some sunshine. See you then. Bye bye.